0: When I was up there and double jeopardy and I hit one of the first daily doubles, I was behind and I knew that I couldn't take enough risk in that spot. And so that's what informs the decision to go true double bet everything I have. And there is something about just the knowledge of the game mechanics having a background and expected value, just knowing that it's mathematically the right decision. It was basically my equivalent of a coach choosing to go forward and fourth down. You have to take risk in that spot.
1: Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and thanks to those of you watching live on Twitter and YouTube or listening in podcast form, appreciate you tuning in however you're tuning in. And with the NFL right around the corner, I know a lot of us about to get bombarded with stats, metrics, and data like EPA, CPOE. Some of you might be thinking WTF. So in this week's conversation. We're here to dive into data across the sports betting landscape, how to use it, and equally importantly, how not to use it in certain cases. And our guest this week for this conversation, former director of data science at the Action Network, the founder of BetScope, a betting intelligence platform, two-time winner of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference Hackathon, also a Jeopardy champion. So if your answer to all these clues would be, who is Colin Davey? You're correct. Colin, welcome to Props and Hops.
0: You know, that may actually be the best segue to pull in the Jeopardy reference I have ever heard on all these podcast appearances. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate I'll it. I'll take it. Yeah. Glad to be I here. I
1: appreciate you hopping on. Glad to have you here. I love to start by getting into guest's background a little bit just for the unacquainted. And I think a good jumping off point could be your Twitter bio, at ADJBaseline on Twitter. You note that you're figuring out how to win games with data, DFS, Jeopardy, and sports betting. So why don't we take a moment right off the top and have you describe your journey in data?
0: Sure. So the Twitter handle actually comes from the very start of this journey, where when I cut my teeth in sports analytics, it was writing about um, tennis analytics, of all things, a sport that I'd never necessarily watched. But as I was kind of developing ranking and predictive algorithms on the side, found an algorithm that really ended up working for professional tennis, of all things. So I wrote about it uh, at SB Nation for a while. Uh, under the editorial discretion of uh, Bill Connolly, now at ESPN, kind of runs the you know college football SP. and um, but from there it was basically a gateway drug into predicting all kinds of sports under all different kinds of methodologies. Really cannot credit enough, you know, my path as a data scientist and a predictive analyst on all things sports betting because it is a great mechanism for getting feedback: what does work, what doesn't work, uh, and really figuring out. Most importantly. That you're never as smart as you think you are uh, when it comes to predicting sports outcomes it's uh everyone has a you know might believe that they're great at picking winners until they actually start doing it seriously and tracking the results and uh, you figure out really quick that this uh, sports betting thing can humble you as much as it wants to every time that you think you uh you're really good at this thing
1: and building on that point of how humbling this all can be once you think you've got it all figured out what would you say are some of the more overvalued and perhaps some of the more undervalued aspects of working with data?
0: Uh, In sports betting, are we going to go sports betting or just like anything in particular, I guess? Sure,
1: through the sports betting lens, but if anything bigger picture comes to mind, that's totally fair game as well.
0: Yeah, I think they're like, I mean, speaking generally, I think working with data, people do have this magic view of what predictive analytics, machine learning, building models, like all these things look like. Where, you know, if you deploy your fanciest algorithm ever, that surely because this is hard to build, it will give you some sort of competitive advantage or some sort of betting edge. Um, usually that is not the case. And I think that the undervalued part, um, especially in sports betting, is actually far more working with price data. Uh, I think it is basically hard. It, predicting sports in general is incredibly hard. Predicting it better than the market in aggregate is even harder. I think the most underrated part, especially in sports betting, is being incredibly price sensitive, because when you're comparing prices and markets and figuring out what is the best market for me to get you know, my money down to represent my beliefs, there is no ambiguity on you know, if I see a price at DraftKings, like, am I really getting that price? The answer is yes. There's no, it's, it's not paramutual betting. It's not, there's uncertainty in what price you're getting. Price sensitivity is easily the most underrated and undervalued part about becoming a winning sports better in particular.
1: I can fully endorse that based on my own experience and my conversations with other successful and professional betters, but I've got to follow up and and think from the standpoint of casual betters who wouldn't consider themselves as price sensitive. Are there any areas outside the realm of price sensitivity for you know the kind of guy who just favorite team's about to tip off or kick off a game and they just want some action on it, but maybe they can get a little bit better without putting forth too much effort shopping around for the best price any low-hanging fruit for casual bettors to apply data in you know, the scope of work that they typically implement on their own end?
0: I think there are some pretty good tools out there that, there that will basically scan all the markets for all the inefficient prices. Um, this may be a semi-unnatural plug for this thing that I've built, BetScope, designed to do exactly that. But you know, if you're just looking to get some action down and you just know that you, you want to have You know, even some inkling of I want to get down in this particular game. Maybe there's even a team you like. There's all sorts of markets that they're probably not even considering everything from the props market to the alternate spreads and totals, Um, like all else being equal. like If you just want to root for a team like you're like in baseball, for example, you're probably just going to put down on the money line for the team that you're looking at. If you just want to root for it, why not root for them even harder and say, like, okay, I'll bet the alternate line market because at this particular book, you know, I'm getting a really good price. So maybe you're rooting for them to win by one and a half and just sort of winning by one. But if you know that you're doing that and you're spiking a bad price, why not try to root for the team you want to root for and try to exploit some market inefficiencies?
1: Got it. Well said. And I want to get into BetScope in just a moment here. But while we're still talking about your background, can't overlook the fact that you have been highly successful when it comes to the hackathons at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. And as we delve into that a little bit, I'd love to know when you started attending Sloan and what got you interested in going there in the first place.
0: So I had built up a pretty decent sports analytics portfolio before going to Sloan for the first time and I think it was 2014. That was actually a requirement because when I first went to the conference, that was the first year they actually did the hackathon. So you're required to submit a portfolio. I was basically a semi-outsider, like into the industry, and so the hackathon was kind of a a good chance to see and test where I'm at compared to other people that kind of had that semi-amateur status. uh, Got into the hackathon, and I was fortunate enough that in the competition, in the first year they did the competition. I basically had done very similar analyses with the data set they offered. The first year competition was ESPN opened up all of their NFL play-by-play data set and just said, here's a data set, do something interesting with it. And I had actually done similar analyses for college football tracking data, trying to understand if simple or complex offenses are better as measured by the variety of uh, you know formations that they had. And so I had a lot of stuff that was basically a plug and play, ready to go. Just needed a slight, a slight bit of it uh, adapting to the new data set. Uh, and it ended up resonating pretty well. So that was a pretty good stroke of luck. Uh, I was happier when the second year that I went, it was a data set that I had not worked, before, worked with before and was still able to pull, out, again, uh, together some winning insights and uh, win it again. So that one kind of proved it wasn't a fluke and uh, a lucky stroke.
1: And what was the subject matter of that second Victorious Hackathon for you?
0: The second year, they gave us tracking data for a chipped up high school football game. And they asked us to answer some five specific questions, basically. Can you show some quantified insight in one of these five areas? Uh, I was able to use that data to quantify offensive line play. Uh, and evaluate how well like the offensive line put pressure or kept pressure off of the quarterback as defined by some velocity vectors headed in the quarterback's direction. How often can you make sure that those velocity vectors don't get too high? Got
1: It sounds a little bit like early days of next-gen stats and everything that we're getting now. And I, I've got to ask, when we think about bridging that part of the past with present day, I also think of the sports betting conference landscape itself. Uh, you, you know, started going to Sloan a while back, and um, you know, very accomplished with what you did there. And we met a few months ago at Bet Dash. Uh, it was the second edition of Bet Dash after the first one took place in Jersey City last summer. And I've got to ask, from your standpoint, having been to Sloan a bunch of times and had a lot of success there, also attending Bet Dash and how acclaimed that whole experience has been, almost unanimously. Um, from what I can understand from everybody who was there in Vegas this past April, how would you compare and contrast Sloan with a conference like BetBash?
0: I think Sloan's success speaks like for itself at this point. I mean, it, it, it is wildly successful. It is basically a household name in the industry. And I think like all conferences, you know, once it's become kind of a victim of its own ses- success on some level, it just caters to a different audience. It is far more front office friendly uh it's uh more of like an MBA mix over the quant mix and again that is what happens when it is a wildly successful conference and i don't begrudge that in the slightest but in terms of bet bash that seems to getting back to the purest version of you know, at some level, all of us attended Sloan because we like trying to predict what's going to happen. Usually the implication for that or the application for that rather uh, is the sports betting market. And I feel like that bash kind of got really back to the roots of that. A lot of people just interested in predicting what's going to happen, not necessarily how to run a team, how to get into the business side of it, all the other ancillary things that go around of it, but just the good old fashioned predicting who's going to win, which is why most of us got into this in the first place.
1: And speaking of the good old fashioned predicting who's going to win, you were one of the first people I met at that Dash before the first session kicked off with just a long sprint of speed networking. You showed me BetScope. I'd love to get into that a bit more at this stage. First off, I know you spoke to it a bit a few minutes ago, but give us a high-level overview of the platform and what it can do for
0: betters. Sure. So BetScope is a combination of kind of a line shopping odds comparison tool. And kind of a way to figure out, like if you start with an initial set of beliefs, let's figure out what other beliefs that might be correlated to and match your full range of beliefs against every single market for a given game so we can make sure that you're attacking the sports betting market at the weakest points. So let's take, so Best Scope was actually built on basketball markets originally. So let's take a basketball example. Let's say that, you know, there's a Cavs heat game and you think Darius Garland or is a, or you like the Cavs all else being equal, right? To cover all else being equal. You also like all the Cavs points props uh, to be over and all of the heat like player prop points to be under, like again, all else being equal. And most people, when they have a reason of like, oh, I want to bet on a game, it's like you, if you pick at the, the loose threads a little bit, you say, why do you like that? Uh, it's usually because I think player X is going to do this or player Y is going to do that. So there's a natural follow up question. Well, why aren't you probing those specific markets? Why are you probing the alternate spreads and totals markets? Why aren't you figuring out every single market that is correlated with that belief and trying to figure out you know, the prices in those markets? Usually the answer is because that's a lot of work. And I get it, that's why most people don't want a price shop. It's why they know these things should be doing. And, and, and in all honesty, there's still an education component where most bettors, especially casual bettors, don't really see the difference between a plus 140 bet and a plus 150 bet. Part of that is because, well, you know, this is kind of my lock of the week. Who cares if I only win you know, an extra 15 cents? Whereas with professional bettors, you do this enough, and that is the only thing that they care about. And so we developed that tool to make that process a little bit easier. Go to a game page. You can see every single implied total, implied market or, or you know, market and their uh, odds for every single one of those markets. And you can just scan them. What we'll also let you do is if you think that one of those markets should be different, i.e., like, you know, I, I think the caps are going to cover. will let you put in what you, that you think the actual line should be. We'll correlate that with, you know, what by definite or by inc- or by implication what you think all the other markets should be, and then paying all of those updated correlated numbers against every single price, and then kind of spit out a recommended list of bets to you. It may not be the original market that you were thinking of, but the thesis uh, of the product is attacking correlated beliefs through markets with price inefficiencies is far more profitable than betting your original beliefs into markets without any price inefficiencies.
1: That sounds like a really good way to maximize expected value in bets you could make on a game versus looking purely at the biggest, most efficient markets. And I think for some casual bettors, one factor that would come into play there, if we're starting to look at a lot of different ways to attack the same thesis, would be bankroll management. So if you've got somebody who really likes the Cavs in your example and they see a lot of ways to bet player props over for Cleveland, maybe they're playing Miami, so they want to bet Heat props under. Is there anything on BetScope or anything you could share in this conversation to speak to the bankroll management component of it so that even if something is really plus EV when we talk about the portfolio for any one game, you know, making sure that people aren't overextending themselves at the same time?
0: So bankroll management is always a fun question because it usually goes hand in hand with this concept that people talk about the Kelly Criterion which is basically, a, a, a try to, the Kelly Criterion is a formula that tries to answer the question, given how much you think your perceived edge is, how much of bankroll uh, should you wager? Um, I would love to, I, I actually go back and forth on the utility of Kelly Criterion, because usually people that trot it out talk about it as though it is a maxim that everyone should be following all the time. And usually those people are people who haven't fired enough to recognize that your calculator edge is never the same thing as your real edge. Um, one of the common mistakes when people start getting into data is they have a model or they have a system of projections, and they can confidently say that oh, this bet is a 60% odds to win. Usually, the market is not that weak where there are just 60%ers hanging out there, and so usually your edge is something closer to you know if you are a winning better, it's something closer to 54% uh, or even 53%. And so if you plug in your original edge into Kelly criteria that says that, you know, this is how much of a bankroll to wager, you're usually going to be overextending yourself. So I think actually that stuff ends up steering betters towards more harm than good. That's why we don't um, include any of that Kelly criteria stuff in BetScope, because I'm sure just as much like we're going to be spitting out percentages that are probably based on, in many cases, you know, flawed assumptions potentially. And so, it, since we're in the service of the you know helping betters actually realize their edges, usually that stuff ends up getting people overextended and betting way more than the bankroll can uh, suffice. So it's kind of a question that is out of scope, pun intended, I guess, uh, for Betscope.
1: Fair enough. Well, sticking with an NBA example, I saw this in Betscope's Twitter feed going back to this past NBA season. I think it was a heat 76 ers game in March, and on Twitter there's a post saying, so close to every prop on the board having betting opportunity and i could see there was a, a photo you know we could see a graphic outlining the betting opportunities and at the same time one of my first thoughts one of my first principles in betting is that our biggest edge is betters is the ability to pick our spots the books have to hang a line for every game we get to pick and choose when we fire away So there's a bit of tension there, but I think these two notions can coexist in a healthy way. How do you reconcile the perceived conflict between our biggest edges bettors being the ability to pick our spots versus a game like that, Heat 76ers one in March, where you see betting opportunity on almost every option on the props menu?
0: Well, that one, those opportunities don't necessarily come along. But if you dive deep into, okay, great, there are betting opportunities in every single market. They're not necessarily at every single sports book. And so when you expand your first statement from like, we get to pick our spot, like at a given sports book to we get to pick our spot across all sports books. It's the ability to only selectively pick off the weak lines of each sports book where we can really capitalize on the edge. Um, there are similar services to BetScope. That will and I think like one of the low-hanging fruits that will eventually get plucked out of people by a lot of people is observing arbitrage situations where you can literally bet two sides of the same market at two different books and lock in a guaranteed profit that's an element of picking your spot because you know you're exploiting price differences across two different sports books. Uh, you could theoretically get to a spot where if one book is just really slow to late breaking news in every single market, it will produce betting opportunities at every single market at that book. So you get rare instances where that is the case or maybe there is just a flurry of news where not every book um, is um, you know updating all of their markets properly. But you know it is consistent to say like, there could be a game where there could be bettable opportunities every single market, but they're evenly distributed across every single book. So having outs at every single book is the way that, I mean, that that's how that circle gets squared, basically.
1: Got it. And I think getting outs at various books is a big priority for a lot of bettors right now, especially with the NFL season just around the corner. I know you mentioned BetScope was founded with a bit of a look more toward the NBA, but are there any offerings in store for BetScope this coming NFL season?
0: Yes, we plan to fully support NFL for sure in the same functionality that we had for NBA and MLB. Uh, Hockey probably coming after that and college football in some order. But NFL does remain our priority for uh, making sure that is ready week one.
1: Got it. And I want to run a very probably non-Bet Scope type of handicap by you, but see what you think as we consider qualitative versus quantitative approaches. One of the most recent wagers I've placed, and I've got to give a hat tip to friend of the show and previous guest, Josiah Clark at Sharp Clark NFL on Twitter. Uh, there's an E at the end of Clark for those who want to look him up. Great follow. Uh, the Jags plus three and a half against the spread and plus 170 on the money line, week one at Washington. And a lot of this again, it's more qual- uh, excuse me, it's more qualitative where I know Betscope tends to be more quantitative. But if we look at, you know, the Jags having Doug Peterson as their head coach now, got some good familiarity with Carson Wentz, the new Washington quarterback. Also considering what a guy like Peterson can do to bring Trevor Lawrence along in his career after Urban Meyer was such a dumpster fire last season. Lawrence could really be primed for a big year two leap as soon as week one against a pretty porous Washington secondary. And then Washington's got some big injuries. Uh, I know they've got Chase Young, Logan Thomas, and their starting center all fighting complications from season-ending injuries last year uh, from which they are currently recovering. Sounds like some news earlier today. Ron Rivera saying Chase Young might be the longest timetable to return and there still is no timetable. I kind of feel like we have a bit of a free roll. If Chase Young can't go in week one, we might see this line tick down to that key number of plus three. So uh, a lot more probably the art than the science of sports betting behind that handicap. But how do you consider factors such as what I've laid out making a pro Jags case in week one versus anything that might be rooted much more quantitatively on the BetScope
0: side of things? So you're actually going to hate this answer, but I, BetScope is basically built to make decisions not anchored around all of the things you just outlined. So half of the fun of sports betting, I know. Is constructing a narrative on why this line is wrong, and I, I am, ba- I've basically seen every single narrative. At this point, like I don't know what it would look like, but you could construct a narrative for both sides of that bet, and they sound equally convincing. I think this is why a lot of people, like when they first get into sports betting, their entry point, so to speak, is based off of these entertainment type narratives, and like it is a way to get invested in the game. You can see, th- you can feel analysty and stuff like that. Like Betscope will look at that same game and say, like, look, we're gonna be agnostic as to what the narrative actually is. We're only look at looking at all of the markets available to that game. So like if there's a plus is there if there's a plus three and a half, like a plus one seventy lane line. I'm not necessarily interested in like what the underlying fundamentals are that drive that line. I'm interested in is there a plus one eighty to go along with a three and a half in a separate book? Is there an alternate line market where you may be able to get down a plus one and a half or plus seven and a half for a slightly different price that is better than its distribution otherwise implies? So like i betscope basically tries to get out of the forecasting business in terms of like you know is this line like good or not like from pure fundamentals because that stuff is actually really hard to get right especially in week one when you're just dealing with massive amounts of uncertainty so i think betscope would honestly wait for more additional markets to come online and figure out like where are the tiny little you know flaws in the totality of markets offered for all of these places
1: one thing you mentioned there I'd like to dig in on a bit further, alternative point spreads. I understand BetScope also doing some work with alternative totals. How would BetScope's process be different than what sportsbooks use to come up with alternative spreads and totals so that betters following BetScope's guidance can overcome the um, like
0: It's not too different. I'm sure that sports betters are also using implied distributions for all of their main spreads. Uh, sometimes there will just be differences in implied distributions, uh, tiny amounts, and that's reflected in tiny differences in price offered in the alternate spreads market. Um, usually, the alternate spreads market is an alternate totals market is not nearly as policed as the main kind of spread total money line, because those are the vectors by which like the most amount of money is able to get down. So there's a little bit less liquidity in those alternate markets. As a result, they police them a little bit better. And for the casual better, who's not worried about being able to get down, I don't know, five, six figures on a game, just maybe looking to get down a couple hundred, it's a profitable spot. So we do utilize distributions and kind of scan, like when we get a price for these different markets, we can come up with an implied probability based on our knowledge of distributions to see what price is the break even for when it becomes profitable?
1: Cool. And for betters listening to this, again, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, you know, an up-and-coming better, not that I'm a professional myself by any means, but somebody who's fairly new to this, looking to get better, open to the idea of working with data a little bit more, but doesn't want to put in a ton of hard work, doesn't know exactly how to use the infinite amount of data that seems to be out there for everybody. When it comes to BetScope, what would you say would be one of the best use cases for some up-and-coming betters, perhaps some best ways just to get
0: started? I think it's basically getting awareness that there are more markets than the original ones that are presented to you on the ticker or on your favorite podcast. You know, like everyone talks about the lines being just like the spreads and totals, like maybe the money line if people talk about it in different forms of content. I think player props are getting a little bit more kind of, you know, in in the mix or whatever, but it's just, but more than anything, it's just awareness that there are a ton of different ways to bet on a game. And so I think as you use it, one of the things that forces you to be aware of is, all right, if I think this one thing is different about a game, that has implications, that has correlations with other markets. And so it's kind of expanding Your ability to attack a sports betting market and just like kind of changing the way that you think about it. It's not just like, oh, this line is bad or this line is a lock. It is am I hunting for all of the best opportunities in totality across all different sports books, across all different markets and really making price sensitivity just a foundational part of your sports betting approach religiously only attacking markets where there are price inefficiencies where you know get you know you're getting the best price possible it's like you won't you aren't going to win at sports betting by constructing a better crystal ball and picking you know figuring out the prediction system that picks 65 percent winners or anything like that none of that is realistic how you really win is finding those two percent edges and grinding them out Time and time and time again. I'm sure you've had many guests that kind of impart the same approach. Sports betting is a grind. It's not a get rich quick scheme. It's not the magical 14 team parlay that will skyrocket your bankroll with one magical you know, swoop. It is finding those inefficiencies and just hammering them over and over and over again.
1: You mentioned sports betting not being a get rich quick kind of scheme. Totally agree there. There's something else I'd be remiss not to bring up with you as a part of this conversation. Some people probably dream of it being a get rich kind of scheme, and it doesn't work out that way for most. But let's talk about Jeopardy for a few minutes here. You have a really good article called How I Won Jeopardy with Data Science, pinned to the top of your Twitter profile. And before getting into that experience, I'd be curious for something that you didn't focus on too much in the article. What was the process like before you even made it to the show just to get there in the first place?
0: So the audition was particularly interesting because it happened for me in 2020, right in the middle of when we we're just starting to all go inside for lockdown for the first time. So normally the audition process starts with people taking an online test, usually offered once a year, but now they offer it any time. If you score well enough on that, usually 70% or more, you get put into a lottery. Uh, which is always the hardest part to clear. I had been taking the test for something like a decade, and it's usually about a 10% success rate for getting called to an audition, so right on schedule. Uh, after that, they have you take a written test to make sure that you basically weren't cheating the first time. Uh, and they do a mock game to assess your camera readiness. Uh, you know, will you make for good television? Do you think that they'll do they think that you'll fold under the lights and just kind of being presentable and uh, making for good TV? So that's most of what the audition process entails. I actually didn't too much, do too much studying for that uh, because there's only so much that you can you know, really improve your, uh, your general knowledge on to get past the audition process
1: once you got past all that and you were prepping for the big show you touched on in your article jeopardy james holzauer also a sports better what impact did you take from his approach and everything that you gleaned from his experience when it came to preparing for your own
0: so i was actually fortunate enough to be able to talk to james directly or rather have a correspondence with him we do have some mutuals who uh since we are in the sports betting industry and they were able to put me in touch james had some little like Tidbits of advice that I appreciated, little things like when you're practicing in front of the TV, wear the shoes you're going to wear on stage because you want to simulate as much as what it's going to be in a game environment. So just really putting yourself and kind—I of, mean, nothing can prepare for the real thing, but it just as focusing on as many little details like that, uh, things like how you're going to hold the buzzer, like what is your technique, um, like and to say nothing of his betting strategy it's all of those little things that like when you do the real effect was those are things you don't have to worry about or think about when you're on the stage because you're going to need every ounce of mental bandwidth to just focus on the game mechanics and so the less thing that you're thinking about the more you can focus on execution the better you'll be um as far as strategy goes like i was very happy like i i couldn't find a flaw with his approach just go from the bottom up build a pot and look for the daily double uh, mine is a very interesting test case in what it's like to do the James whole strategy when you're not James Holtower. Again, the thing powering his success is he just knew pretty much every single answer. I did not know nearly as much as he did. And that ended up with some funny moments of, I think I went for the bottom row in my first round and didn't get a single bottom row question. Right? So I probably look kind of like an idiot, but again, like, I don't care. It's what's there to maximize my chance of success.
1: Sure. So I think building on that a little bit, knowing that Jeopardy can be such a fascinating topic to explore for so many people, most of whom will never get the chance to actually go on the show, but anybody pretty much anywhere these days, even if we're not in a state with legal betting like I am in California, you can find a way to get down if you want to. So if we think about some crossover skills, what would you say might be one or two of the best things you did to prepare for your Jeopardy experience? that could also translate to that up and coming sports better looking to maybe benefit from your experience to help out their own ROI in the sports betting realm.
0: So I'm actually gonna flip the script on you and say that it was actually the sports betting background that helped my Jeopardy appearance. And so that if you want to get good at sports betting, like this is where like I actually think some of the value, of the stuff like Betscope and sports betting and predictive analytics like really, like, really shines. So um, it is the inverse of what you asked, but I think it's a helpful anecdote all the same. So when I was up there um, and double jeopardy and I hit one of the first daily doubles because that's part of the strategy going daily double hunting, I was behind and I knew that I couldn't take enough risk in that spot. And so that's what informs the decision to go through double pet everything I have. And there is something about just the knowledge of the game mechanics, having a background and expected value, just knowing that it's mathematically the right decision. It was basically my equivalent of a coach cho- choosing to go forward and fourth down. You have to take risk in that spot. That mental backstop, I think was the like the difference for me like basically being able to pull it together and get the right answer in time because some people do freeze under the lights, some people crack under I know that if I get this wrong my day is done and I think having that gambling and sports betting background is kind of like a backstop that allowed me to execute in the moment. And I think that is illustrative of why the sports betting stuff and if you want to get good at it, it has implications outside of sports betting. Things like price sensitivity, familiarity with probability, being able to make data-driven decisions—they have implications outside of sports betting that will just make you a better round, a more well-rounded thinker. Uh, and it has applications and disciplines outside of sports betting. So, like I, I, I think the lesson is the same. Like you're investing and in getting better in sports betting is a worthwhile endeavor, not just to grow your bankroll, but because it'll have it'll make you better in things outside of sports betting you don't necessarily anticipate.
1: Hmm. And building on the way you flipped that question on me, I, I like this framework. When you think about betting, you talked about it making people more well-rounded thinkers. Obviously, certain skill sets can translate to more financial success and other walks of life as well. Beyond your Jeopardy experience, is there anything you think that could be attainable for a lot of people to use sports betting, not just in a vacuum, but to use those skills for, you know, whether it's intellectually, financially any other walks of life that maybe people would better serve themselves to look to apply more using their sports betting experience and knowledge as a jumping off point?
0: Oh, absolutely. And I feel like I have lived the case study for exactly that. Um, I was not a data scientist prior to getting into sports betting, but I knew that I was interested in building models, understanding probability, seeing if I could generate my own predictions. And the great thing about sports betting Is, as I alluded to earlier, are these frequent feedback cycles of assessing whether or not you're wrong? You know, it's one thing to make something like, you know, a presidential election model where you find out if you're right once every four years. It's another to do a basketball model where you're basically proven like whether or not you're right or not multiple times a day. And so having that feedback cycle of, you know, where are my assumptions wrong? Where do I need to improve? Um, like is very valuable in terms of, you know, making you a better, well-rounded data scientist, or it it made me a better, well-rounded data scientist. And so just the ability to um, have a feedback process for, you know, your analytical rigor, like it's a it's been, I can speak in for myself, it's been a foundation for a lot of the data science work that I've done ever since. And uh, I think the field requires a little bit of humility and there's no better, you know, humility uh, source than the, the sports betting market.
1: I can get behind that. And as you talk about using betting to be more well-rounded as a person, I think that's a perfect bridge to a staple on this show, a segment called The Molinsky Minute, as a nod to the late, great David Molinsky. And when I think of your background and knowing what I did about Dave, I mean, Dave is somebody who, betting and beyond almost any subject, his knowledge seemed to be a 10 out of 10, pretty much across the board. But he could also speak in a relatable way to anybody on any topic even if their knowledge might be a one out of 10 so he could keep things engaging in any context and with that kind of perspective in mind i'm wondering at your level of data knowledge sports betting experience using that to win jeopardy what would you say is your top advice for the up-and-coming better who's new to this simply looking to improve as they go along their sports betting journey
0: um, there's no substitute for just doing it. Like when in doubt, just like get your hands dirty and anything. If you want to start making predictions, just go ahead and do it. If you want to start like trying to do some, you know, price shopping or line, or, you know, price sensitivity, line shopping, line comparison, just go ahead and do it. There's no substitute for experience uh, and just being open to knowing that, like when you start off, like whatever you're gonna do and whatever angle you attack, you're gonna suck for the first like couple of months, maybe even years of doing this. Uh, It is not a reason to quit. It is not a reason to get discouraged. It's just there's no substitute for experience in terms of just getting that grounded wisdom and knowledge and fundamentals for all the stuff. So um, there's no like I don't think there's any expensive course required. I don't think there's any like I need to go like do this class or like do any of this. Just just go ahead and do it. Uh, And just like there's no substitute for experience.
1: Yeah, learning by doing. And regular listeners of the show might be sensing a recurring theme. Last week I had on Pisky and the Full Dog from Banfield Group, a professional betting group. And they mentioned that even as pro bettors who've had some good success over the years, seemingly every time they try something new, initially they are just met with a brick wall of negative variance. Or perhaps it's not even variance. It's just struggling to find their footing in a new discipline. But that persistence, open-mindedness, trying to figure it out, getting those reps in, I think has made all the difference for them over the long run. And it seems like that would resonate similarly with the advice that you just gave. I would also add from my own personal experience, prefacing my upcoming question with the fact that I advocate all good things in moderation. Sometimes when things aren't going great, it's nice to take off the edge. Let's weave in another pillar of this show, the hops. When you're looking to just unwind and, and back away from the grind a little bit. Do you have a go-to beer or anything that you like to drink just to relax when you're not in it, getting in those reps and going through the grind of sports betting?
0: So when I'm back home in Chicago, my go-to, weather independent for better or for worse, is the Revolution Brewing Eugene Porter. Uh, Like most of the time, it's pretty chilly out here and it just has the... Just a very, like, you feel 10 degrees warmer after drinking it. Uh, It just has a very, like, uh, very very great cold weather beer, but even light enough to go down, like, even in the hotter summer months. Uh, It just remains my go-to whenever I'm back at home. Like, can't say enough good things about it.
1: I like that you went with a porter, because out here, people joke in the summertime, they say stout season, when it's not uncommon to see, you know, 90, 100-degree temperatures across L.A. or Southern California. And there is a stout powerhouse, that goes uh, by Bottle Logic. They release Fundamental Observation. They're probably most famous Imperial Stout every year. Bourbon barrel-aged, a lot of vanilla. It tastes like dessert and brownie batter. If somebody's not into coffee or beer, they could be blown away that this could have that flavor profile and be that potent from an alcohol by volume percentage. I think it's north of 13% without looking it up. But again, if it's 100 degrees and you're pounding that, A, the ABV is way up there, and B, that's you know pretty heavy in that kind of heat. Um, that's not everybody's cup of tea, but if it's a little bit cold, you know, the porter can have a lot of similar tasting notes, but at the same time, maybe not weigh you down as much. And yeah, in in a place like Chicago, that winter warmer kind of vibe, I I feel like can go a long way. So it sounds like a very appropriate beer almost anytime, any place, but especially in Chicago with a lot of the weather you're dealing with year round.
0: Yep. It is a, a necessary survival component at this point.
1: Love it. All right. Well, hopefully before too long, I can get back to Chicago. I've only been there once. It was way back in 2013. So I'm due to get back out there. And I've heard amazing things about Revolution. I've had a chance to try some of their stuff at a few beer festivals, and it's always been a positive experience. So I'd love to be able to get a trip like that on the books. Maybe you and I can go pound some of that porter together at some point. Before then, going to go ahead and wrap this up. I want to thank everybody once again for watching live, listening in podcast form. If you've enjoyed this conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops would be to take just a few seconds, leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or if you're seeing this in video form, go ahead and share the video across Twitter. And Colin, I also want to make sure to plug your work so people know where they can follow you if they're not doing so already on Twitter at ADJBaseline. And of course, you work with BetScope. People can find that at BetScope.io on Twitter, at BetScope.io. Colin, is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add?
0: Can't wait for football season. We got some exciting things in the works and uh, the markets have uh, never been right for picking.
1: Love it. I think we're 43 days away from the season kicking off as we record this, so I'll be counting them down right alongside you. Thanks again, Colin, for your time and insight and I look forward to reconnecting at the next Bet Bash or perhaps in Chicago as soon as possible.
0: All right. Thanks, Matt. Been a pleasure being here.